Okay, uh, what I thought I'll do is I will start very briefly for those of you who were not here next week, but, but last week, um, to give you just a, a, a brief synopsis of what I'm hoping to do um, through the series, so that you, you have an idea that this is uh, framed as, as a three-part. Uh, so the, the overall theme is Christian uniqueness in an age of religious pluralism. And so based on what you've been thinking of about how does one navigate uh, large systemic changes and still follow the path and the call to discipleship, I've picked up the theme of navigating change in our multi-religious world. Um, and what I've done is to say that we come into a new way of thinking what it means to be disciples. If you recall, I said that in general, particularly within the Reformed traditions, of which I also belong because of my ordination within the Church of South India, um, and the Church of South India uh, was an organic church that came together in 1947 that brought together the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, um, the Methodists, and also the Anglicans for the first time. Historically, this was the first time we all came together in India. And I'm ordained into this particular tradition. So keeping that in mind, in general, what I was told, and you may remember that this was part and parcel of how we learned to imbibe discipleship, is we started off by believing and then we behaved in certain ways and then came together to be called as church. So in general, we went from believing onto behaving onto belonging. Uh, what I'm saying is that what is happening today within the change that we're seeing around us is there's first the sense of belonging. And then we're saying because we belong in such a way to, and I tried to stress last time, belonging to God, belonging to each other, and in a strange way, almost cutaneously, that is through our skin, we belong to creation. And to reclaim what this means as the broadest way of belonging. And then today I'm moving into what we're saying is if we belong this way, we also act out forms of trying to be disciples because I'm saying we behave in such a way that keeps us faithful to the one who calls us, who is Jesus. So, in a sense, believing comes along the way of following and behaving because of following. And as I said, one of the things that I've thought of as a real challenge for me is because I'm not the one that's doing the calling, Jesus is the one that calls and says, come follow. I don't get to choose who, in fact, I am co-disciple with in terms of the journey. And so our behaving then has to do with this following of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as I placed before you last time, 
I'm interested in cultivating Christianness. Cultivating the ways through which we together are called to follow and to live out in our practice how the world sees that we are navigating all the changes by listening to the come and faithful to the following. And so this is what we will do today. And then next week, I will talk about believing. I'll go back almost to say, well, if this is what we think is our sense of belonging, if this is how we behave because we are following the one who called us Jesus Christ, then how do we cobble together a belief that can hold some of this together? So in a sense, belief is an acclamation along the way of following. And so we almost say, I believe, continue to help thou my unbelief. It's this form. And what I'll do is I'll appeal to us as reformed thinkers and I will reclaim what it means to talk about the spaciousness of the Trinity. How do we allow God to be God and in a sense provide room for God to be God? And I think the spaciousness, the capaciousness of the triune one creates a lot of room for us both to house who we are and also seek the fullness of the abode of God, which we believe is part of the Trinity. So, let's move on then to today's lecture. Passionately Christian for uncommon work. All of us have heard the discourse around in the Western world that talks to us about common good. My claim is that following Jesus is not only about the common good, that all of us can sit together and say, this is good for you, it's good for me, you are okay, I am okay, we are okay. Right? So this idea of the common good. But what we see is uniquely Christianness is cultivating the passion for, the, for uncommon work. And so we look at what this means for us. Because I think that's what makes us Christian. It's an eye to word and hands that join together in order to work for that which, which not many others are really interested to do. And so I, my, my wager is that we have to consider this if we listen to the come and we're willing to follow Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus our Christ. So the first thing that we look at in terms of passionately Christian for uncommon work is the question as to what is this being passionately Christian? And let me start with a word that I have learned that the world needs more Christianness, not less. Um, I've been groomed within the corridors of your most 
well-established, well-known, and most liberal institutions. Okay? So when I came out in 1987 for graduate work, I was baptized into your liberal pond. Okay? I didn't come from the other side of the pond, but I came from the other side of the other side of the pond, so from <laughs> India, right? So I made a couple of jumps and suddenly realized that I was baptized into this liberal tradition of the pond. We need, okay, great, thanks, Jim. Um, and what I realized is when I went back home, uh, uh, we finished about 10 years in the first stint, and then we went back home for 10 years to work out all that I thought I'd learned through the baptism of this wonderfully liberal pond. And then I came back as well. And some of what I took was a very interesting model. What I thought is that if you knock out enough of the passion that people had for Jesus Christ, somehow they will wear the cloak of compassion for every other religious tradition. So what I went after is anyone that said the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, I will pounce on them. And so the usual thing is, it's no big deal saying uniqueness of Jesus Christ. It actually doesn't mean anything, right? Of course Jesus Christ was unique, Buddha is unique, you are unique, I am unique. So what are you talking about, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? Of course, and more than anything else, Jesus was God-man. So there was some, you know, whether it's genetic or affirmation, whatever it is. This is new being, right? Of course Jesus is unique. So I was trying to knock out that in order for them to feel compassion for everybody else. And then I realized, this basically is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because you take away the passion and singularity of following and loving God and Jesus Christ, you may as well actually just appeal to being a human being. Nobody really knows what it means, but they love saying, yes, I'm a human being. So I gradually relearned that in many ways I was doing something that was upsetting to human beings who are disciples, but also somewhat useless for the cause of taking Christianness into the whole world. And so I've now learned and tell my students, I expect you to be passionately Christian. And because you are passionately Christian, you will, in following Jesus Christ, take on the mantle of being compassionate for all those around you. It's, this is what I think is the balance. Because I said one of the things that I'm repenting for as well is not just the model, but this propensity that most of us live by which is we want to see difference in terms of dualisms. So we want to say, black? Well, what about white? white? And then, of course, we poor browns get left out and all of that, right? <laughs> so I'm like left in between. So it's like, no, 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 stay in between. Let's mediate that, right? Or we say, Christian, non-Christian. Good, evil. While most of us float if you're very honest, and you should be because you're going in to the service and you will have confession, we all float between this. And so what I'm asking a lot of my students now who will go out and be ministers, I said, I will continue to inject passion for Jesus Christ in your lives. And 
I will ask you to allow that passion to flow out also in terms of compassion that is interfaith, that involves people that are left out, outside of what happens in your lives. So I believe that one should not see this as opposite qualities. I'm asking you to be more passionate about Jesus Christ which I believe allows for an overflow of compassion. And we will look at what passion means in the next slide. But let me leave with you um, uh, someone that's mattered a lot to me to reclaim my own passion for Jesus Christ. And that's uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who is, is uh, a 19th century theologian um, that was rebelling against a lot of what the German philosophers, particularly Immanuel Kant, was doing, which was trying to make reason the platform and also the enclave of religion. So Kant had this amazing capacity. He said, you cannot experience God, but that doesn't mean there is no God. You can think God even if you, there is no God. So for him, God was a useful category a transcendental category with which to work. And so what it did is made lots of very cold human beings that lacked the passion of what it means to follow and to give their whole life up for God. Let's read uh, 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 Kierkegaard because his words uh, bring together some of what I'm saying in terms of infusing passion into our lives to continue to journey with warmth and love the journey that we are called to as disciples of Jesus Christ. He says, the object of faith is the actuality of another person. Its relation is an infinite interestedness. The object of faith is not a doctrine. For then the relation is intellectual and the point is not to bungle. But the object of faith is the actuality of a teacher. One can even say a lover who loved us first. That the teacher or the lover actually exists and can be loved in return with infinite passion. So what we're calling all of us to do in this world that navigates change is not to be too reasonable not to be too distant, but to continue to live off the energy of love in the following of Jesus. And that, indeed, is the clue and the gift to be compassionate. The other thing that I'm really struck with when we say passionately Christian is that I have to do a take on all of you in terms of what is the meaning of passion. If I ask you what the meaning of passion, some of you will say, it used to be there in my yesteryears. I really don't know what you're talking about. But let's, uh, you know, we can have a discussion on this. I love knowing what other people's passion is all about, right? So in general, if you say where we're all of us are part of the mindset of modernity and the usual idea of what passion is. So the popular meaning of passion, and I've taken basically from, from the Oxford Dictionary, strong and barely controllable emotions, 
often associated with intense sexual love or with outbursts of enthusiasm. Some of the enthusiasm can be, you know, negative as well, right? Crimes of passion, we will talk about. But again, when we say crimes of passion, we usually immediately think, oh, geez, there's some woman or man involved as well, right? So in general, when we think about passion, we're primarily thinking of passion along the lines of outbursts of energy, usually involved with sexuality, okay? But this is not the same within Christian. So what we're asking for when I say passionately Christian is not that everybody actually is sexually charged Christians. I mean, I don't know what that means, but anyway, uh, whatever it means. That's not what we're talking about. Think about, uh, you remember what, uh, we're going into Lent uh, uh, March 1st. You remember what we uh, were asked to look forward to? What is the end of Lent? What is it called? The, the end last week, what do we call it? It's like Passion Week. It's just like, what the, what is going on? Passion Week, and then you look at this man, Jesus like he's sweating blood all the time. This is like, is there anything, you know, what is this? Why do we say passion? This is where we get back to the biblical root also of what we're looking for in terms of passion, which almost is exactly opposite to what we try to understand in terms of passion. Um, if, if you actually want to have an absolutely brilliant book, well-written, wonderful English, um, Go out and buy William H. Vanstone's The Stature of Waiting. Um, a, a, a lot of this root for me came alive in reading this book. It's beautifully written. And it's really a discourse on love. It's changed a lot of the ways in which I have seen passion and I have seen love, not only as a Christian, but also as a husband. It's something that just is deeply moving in terms of what it is. But what I learned from him is very interesting. It comes, he looks at Judas, and he looks at Judas's betrayal, and he takes the word that builds up and looks at what passion is by looking at this word in Greek, paradidomi, which is to hand over. Now, what he does is amazing. He looks at the Gospel of Mark, and he sees Mark, and he sees something very interesting that happens in Jesus' life, with Judas being involved. If you'll remember Mark as a Gospel, you'll find that Mark is, is really running with energy and overdone eagerness or enthusiasm, one can call passion. Right? So Mark, you have immediately Jesus did this. Immediately he went out. Immediately that's what it's like. This man is driven, pushed, pushed, pushed. However, the moment Judas hands him over, the moment that happens, you find a complete difference in which Jesus now becomes passionate in a different sense, which the same word is what we use for passive. Okay? Passive to what the crowd does to him, to what the authorities do for him, and what God is doing in his life. You see a marked change. And so in one sense, what we're calling you to 
is the point of handing yourself over to being a follower of Jesus. So to be a passionate Christian doesn't mean that you will stand up and scream your lungs off if somebody insults Jesus. It's primarily saying that I will become accepting of all that God wants to do in my life which will lead to the fulfillment of all things in the world around me. Now, as I told you last time, it's not just that I learned this as a Christian. Because I was... I started off my Christian life by being very influenced with a, a, a group that was a very missionary group. And so for the first two years of my life, I would go out on the street and I was passionate in the way in which I thought it is to be a passionate Christian. I went out with tracks. I would call people and say, you've got to look at this. I had a bridge that I would say. I'll say, do you know that you are on one side because of sin and you can get to the other side and attain wholeness and life in Jesus Christ, which means to live forever and ever. And of course, Indians are very polite, thank God. No, everyone will say, yes, do you want to live forever and ever? The, the poor guy may have been a Buddhist and to live forever and ever is bad news for Buddhism. They want to get out of life because life is suffering, right? Dukkha. But they will say, yes, I'll sit down with them and I'll passionately say, this side you'll die, that side, all of this will go on. This is the passion that I thought it means to be Christian. And suddenly, after knowing what this means, I said, to be passionate is allow yourself to be full of what God can do by simply allowing yourself to be available for the life of the world that is around you. And as I told you, I believe, of course my wife is here so I can't exaggerate too much, but I believe that has made such a difference to me in terms of being a husband. Because I thought that everything had to do with where my passion could reside, which was in the body of my wife for a long time, or the head, head of my wife in her mind, her acceptance. And I thought that I was bubbling with passion and it had to go somewhere and that's all I thought was happening. So when it went somewhere, I was like, wow, I love you, darling. If it went nowhere, I had a long face, nothing would happen. Till I realized a lot of times that to bring forth the relationship that was truly overflowing with joy was to allow all the dynamics to work out so that everyone has experienced something of life. And you come back and say, oh, maybe I was not fulfilled in the ways in which I thought. But there's something that we've learned together. Both of us, the four of us as a family. And so what happens through this is this idea of being passionately Christian doesn't mean standing up and hollering whatever you feel you're called to do. But to allow yourself trustingly to also know that God is working through all those that are called by Jesus and being part of what happens in terms of the journey. I'm going to stop here for questions before I move to my next point. I think last time we had many questions and we were not sure, so sure. So, so if, if, if you have questions or comments, uh, this is a good time to do it. I've, I've got my eyes on the clock, so I, I know that we will finish um, at... at 1045? Yep, 1045. So, so, yes, please. The challenge I see in what you're describing is 
the tendency for passivity. And then I'm just accepting what happens. Where does action participate in that? And it, and or, or am I just reading this wrong? Right. I, I, that's a very good question. I want to make two comments, which I think will help us all. I think this should be understood in terms of what I talked about in terms of our belonging to God, belonging to each other, and belonging to creation. So there's already a deep-rooted economy of God that is taking place. right? It also should be understood that our job as Christians is not to set agendas for ourselves and feel zealous about whatever it may be, whether it is simple social work, or simple evangelism, but to also realize that we become who we are by being reshaped in terms of this journey that we are called to work upon. So the passivity, and that's the wonderful change that we see in terms of what Jesus does, this immediacy of being driven, and then the immediacy of allowing himself to allow God to fulfill God's self. Now, keep in mind that Jesus didn't like this passivity. He was like, oh no, can we take this cup away? I can do something about it. So I think that's what it is. This, this idea of what this means in terms of ourselves as Christians in this world that is navigating change. The second comment is exactly what you stress. And, and it's good that you stress it because one should be very careful as a privileged male sitting among other privileged human beings, to think that for all people, this means just sitting back and relaxing and allowing things to happen, which is passivity, right? I'm realizing that in many ways, this call to co-disciple and journeying with others has seen two different callings that we have. It is for those who've been defaced, demoralized, and dehumanized to stand up straight, accept their belonging before God, and take on agency to be who they are, in spite of the fact that the world tells them, this is not good, this is bad, this is not what we want. And I think this is true of minority groups, particularly African Americans, definitely Native Americans, and women who, in general, we tend to tell them, this is what you should be. Right? So while it calls for a certain allowance by some of us to allow this and take the agenda from those around us who don't have voice, it's also important to say we shouldn't take away voice and agency from those co-disciples that we shut up and let them basically take over for a brief while of the journey. So I, I, I think that's how I would see this in terms of the co-discipleship and the belonging that we feel together. Other comments or questions? Yes. Along that lines of what you just said, um, what you just said um, I have a, a child that is very, very different from me. And um, when she was small, I tried really hard for to like the things that I liked and you know I'm very more on the intellectual side and 
Um, I l- had to learn the hard way because she rebelled against a lot of the things that I liked because it wasn't her. She was she loved sports. Um, I ha- was not interested in sports at all. Um, and over time, it took me a lot of hard lessons to let her be who she was. And um, and she is finding her own way, you know, which is a very different way from me. Um, but I had to, and I prayed about it a lot, and I held it to God a lot. I still do. Um, but I see that God is working in her life. Um, and she's becoming closer to God um, because we've always, I've always stressed that. And so um, she is now, st- God is blessing her and me, and she is becoming who he made her to be, not who I wanted her to be, Or and she's very different from me. But I have changed because I have and love a very different person from me. And it's helped me to see a lot of things, and it's brought a lot of wonderful people into my life that I would not have um, been close Mm. to or had any relation. Christians of a lot of different backgrounds. Um, She has um, very connections with a more evangelical church, and they have blessed me, and they have blessed her. Um, She also has... Um, connections here at Westminster, but that was a part of her finding her way, you know, and her faith, and I had to let it go um, because, you know, God has, she's a different person. But you've you've actually almost uh, lifted up a testimony for what uh, I'm talking about. A lot of what I'm talking is still theory, but you've actually lifted up and said, this almost seems the only way towards everybody's fulfillment, you know. Uh, and and I, I share with you, you know, Prem and I have, have two adult sons. Um, they're 34 and 31. Um, and, and for a long time, parents have this wonderful gift that becomes a burden where we know better than them exactly what they should do. We've, you know, we've known them longer. We've been self-reflective with them longer than they have been self-reflective, right? Some of it is right, and, and when they keep going off, we're like, just, you can't do anything, because if you, if you say A, then they will go with B. So what you do is you just weep, <laughs> and you pray, and you ask God and say that, you know, you're in control of their lives, you know, do something, you know. Uh, and so different phases... And this came through with, the, with us uh, uh, a lot during the time of, of, of the, you know, who they should marry. So Indians have this 98 to 99% of all Indian marriages are arranged. Okay? It's, it's absolutely amazing. There's some strange mindset, some gene that has gone wrong somewhere, right? <laughs> so just things like perpetuate this. So Prema and I thought that you know, we knew exactly who they're going to marry. And, and we're like, okay, we know this. And eventually, they both married Australians, which, of course, by default means they'll never come home. (laughs) But we also realized after their choices that we didn't know them at all. What they wanted of a partner was not what we thought was what will give them joy. Now, 
it's early in their marriage. <laughs> but still, it's taught us, not just for them, but it's taught both of us humility and a little bit more trust in what God can do in our lives. So this, I think going back to the question, I think the call for us in this being compassionate is when you find that your passion is misdirected and you're using all of religion to rationalize what you actually is, feel is passionate in terms of what you're doing, is to let go and, and allow God's working through a very complex mechanism to fulfill its purposes out. And at the same time, when you're just relaxing and say, oh, you do it, oh God, everything is okay, to say that this passion is also compassion, and we'll get to that soon, which is being passionate in and with Jesus Christ. So it, it calls us to do both of these together. But, but thank you again for sharing that with us. Okay, shall we move? Um, so this is the second thing. Um, it's not just being passionately Christian. It's being compassionate. And this is another. It's con, passion. Passion with. Right? And in our case, it's passion with the trust in Jesus Christ, whom we are following. Correct? So being compassionately at work with the Holy One of God, Jesus. Um, you know, and this is really very important for all of us to, to keep in mind. Um, a lot of us think our lives in terms of God being invoked for us to hold everything together the way we want it. You know, which means to hold together the family, to see that all our children are successful, to see that everything works well between both of us. But the compassionate one that we are following has, as I said, his eyes all over. So suddenly what happens, and you'll see this a lot in Jesus, those who in fact followed him, suddenly they felt Biological relationships are very important, right? So they kept following him and said, oh, if you can hold, hold us together, everything will be okay. But you see this compassion and walking with Jesus, now suddenly, everyone is brother and sister. You all know, in fact, Jesus' mother and brothers come and they're waiting to see him. So the disciples go in good fashion that all of us know in terms of how status quo work. The disciples go and say, your mother and your brothers are waiting to see you. Meaning, you better prioritize them and get, you know, mom has to see you first. Forget all these disciples. Do you remember what Jesus says? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my father in heaven. I think increasingly this is the challenge to us in the U.S. as we navigate change. Because we want God to invoke whatever we have decided is good for us. Right? And in a sense, the compassionate one and all of us who are following and journeying, he is leading us to new pathways to see how this is related to each other. Who should come into your life? And I would urge you, always keep one eye along with the master to look at who the master is looking and bringing into your lives. See, 
Prem and I, one of the uh, drawbacks of this moving between continents is that we really have had to create a family. There's no natural Indian presence for us. We don't have uh, brothers and sisters who live close by, uh, parents not around. And yet we're extremely fulfilled. Why? Because we keep an eye and say, Oh Lord, who is this brother or sister or mother that you will bring into our lives? And right now, if you come to any of our uh, 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 festivals, either birthdays or we have uh, Thanksgiving, you will find you will have to look hard to see another Indian. Why? Because of this gracious eye that the compassionate one has for people around them. And I tell you, keep your eye out. A lot of this is extremely easy. It doesn't mean that, in fact, you move people into your basement. It may. It may be they move in the basement and they take over your master bedroom at the end. Whatever. It may move, but it may just mean that you have sufficient to give $50 a month that can feed most families apart from the U.S. in the two-thirds world. It just means that the network of what the compassionate one wants to bring together is much larger than what we can think or imagine. And a lot of this is gut level. I told you, I never let my gut... To be quiet in any communication that happens. If I feel something deeply and strongly, and this happens in a, in a lot of ways, I try to take this seriously. Most of my en being entwined with the world around me is not through my head. That would be lousy because I, I'm a heady fellow and it will take me nowhere. It's primarily what it means to be compassionate. Again, keep in mind the Greek word for compassion used in the New Testament is something along the lines of being moved from the bowel which in Jewish idiom means having deep compassion. It brings together deep love and concrete piety. But the other thing that I've learned in following the compassionate one who's at work is to realize that the one that we follow is also the one that is leading us towards holiness. And I want to leave this thought with you as we look at being compassionately at work with the Holy One of God. See, in general, when we think of holy people, we think of separated people. So, for example, within the Hindu tradition, the holy person is the sannyasi who has given up all mundane work, lives out of, basically, is a vegetarian, lots of milk, the purity of life, and gradually fades away and is thought of being separate. In a sense, you can see the Old Testament and some of the holiness involves separation. Okay, so you don't get your hands dirty, you don't touch the sick, you're very careful in terms of whether the lame and the blind can come to the temple because they're kept separate, right? This is holy. They are not so holy. But you look at Jesus, the compassionate one, it's exactly opposite. Holiness for Jesus is wholeness. Holiness for Jesus is being entangled with the polluted, with the poor, those who are despised, in order to bring them into the wholeness of what God wants to bring about. So the other thing that you realize is that if 
we are serious about Christianness as being cultivated in the following of the compassionate one who is at work as the holy one, it means that we will become dirty. We will become entangled. We will become part of something that we first thought, oh my goodness, this can never be. Why? Because it is in this conscious following with our eyes open that we are part and parcel of what God is doing in the world. So it's not just being passionately Christian, it's also being compassionately at work with the Holy One of Jesus. Um, Moltmann is, is a theologian um, that, that has, has influenced a lot of ways in which one rethinks what holiness is. Um, the other person that's done a lot of work is, is Walter Brueggemann, done a lot of work on holiness as entangled relationship. That's the wholeness and moving towards holiness that the compassionate one is involved in. So, Moltmann says, the church is sanctified wherever it participates in the lowliness, the helplessness, poverty and suffering of Christ. Its glory is manifest through the sign of poverty. It's becoming messed up with all the things that we say we live for to escape. And this is what happens when one works through the compassionate one. And what it means for us, and I'm learning this uh, even though um, most of, of, of my living comes from being holed up in ivory towers and armchairs. But I'm learning that, that I cannot be a Christian cultivating Christianness in following without consecrating hands and feet for uncommon work. Um, I did a lot of early thinking on what it means to be common good. Most common good people sit in libraries and armchairs and they say, hey, I think this is the common good. Let's get together basically in this um, you know, four or five star hotel and talk about what is common good. I'm now realizing that to follow and to be obedient to the come and follow of Jesus has to keep me open to compassionate love shaped by Jesus. That is getting one's hands dirty and feet placed among things that the world will not do. Things that the world feels it's shameful to do. And this is what happens in terms of Jesus of Nazareth, the one that I continue to follow. I love this verse. Um, it, it comes in Matthew, and, and you may have seen this as well, uh, because it has the compassion, which is compassion, becoming passionate in the movement and the energy of Jesus. Right? It says, when he saw, and this is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, most of us 
take this out of the context and we say let's go to the whole world and preach about Jesus Christ there's nobody around we've heard it that way but if you look at the movement of Jesus and those he has his eye on it's primarily people that have been taken advantage of the shepherds of its day, of their day which is both within the Jewish temple community that in fact ripped them off um, but also those that were harassed because all of the leadership was primarily working towards building up an empire that had nothing to do with the poor. Right? So this is the context of what is happening. And so what this involves then a lot for Jesus is your willingness to give up everything, realize that there is blessedness in the poor in spirit, Again, uh, as you know, Matthew uses blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Luke picks up the whole same thing and says, blessed are you poor. No spirit there. For yours is the kingdom of God. And all of us have been, oh, you know, what happens? Who's poor in spirit? Let's not forget them. And it's usually us who are poor in spirit but not materially poor. That's saying, poor me, why don't you think about me? I'm all at the center of what happens. But you must keep in mind that whoever reads this should read it in this context. The poor in spirit are those who were harassed and helpless and broken by the political system where there was no hope for them because they were poor, scattered. They were colonized by Rome. Right? So it almost is the same kind of thing, but not just were you poor, but your spirit also was broken. You had no agency with which to rebuild your lives. So you have this here, and I want to place this before you almost as a calling. When you saw the crowd gather together at Westminster, he had compassion for them. And he said to them, the harvest, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord. In other uh, uh, versions, it says, pray of the Lord. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Do you know at the end, the people that he asks to pray are the disciples. The next verse is Mark 10.1. Guess who he sends out to the poor, the helpless, and the harassed? Who does he send out? The same disciples. So again, this whole issue is that most of us pray because we're outsourcing this to somebody. Oh Lord, please, there's a poor person. Why don't you take care of him? Lord, that person is sick. Uh, instead of taking them a bowl of soup, Lord, can you please be with that person? You know, so what we're doing is constantly outsourcing our prayers. It's like, I think this is a good idea, God. Why don't you get busy, do something about it? But these guys, there were guys, unfortunately, then only 12 of them. They were called and he said, pray for it. Why? Prayer is basically preparation that you will become answer for your own prayers. That's what it is. So if, again, I tell you, be very conscious. If somebody comes up to your mind constantly for prayer, it's not an accident. If they're brought into your mind so that you will be sent out in the end, it's preparation for what and how you can go about what God wants to do. In terms of being ready to allow your hands and your feet to be planted among those, but to reach out in some way beyond ourselves to work words, the consecration and allowing ourselves so in one sense 
passionate Christian means every bit of who you are is needed. You can't just be a heart Christian. You can't just be a head Christian. You have to be a hands Christian and a feet Christian. You have to have very keen sense of listening. You have to realize that if someone comes to your mind twice or thrice in prayer, it's the spirit at work. It's preparing you. It's working towards what God can do through you. As God's own presence reaches out through the body of Christ, whom you and I are, in terms of working towards what God wants us to do. So, this is something I just want to leave with you. This allowing oneself to be passionate and therefore be to rest in what God is doing, not just taking control of everything and doing it for yourself, but an ability to also realize that God's belonging has held us all together and God is working out to what goes on. And this notion that whatever we say, because the one who called us is the compassionate one who is trying to move us towards holiness, not in terms of being apart, but in terms of being engaged and entangled with all the yuckiness of everything that we're around with. All of that is part of this journey. And keeping an eye on the harassed ones is part and parcel of what it means in terms of our own becoming holy. right? And becoming holy means becoming whole. There is a, clearly a preferential option for reaching out to and drawing alongside those who are harassed and helpless. Um, this becomes really part and parcel of our calling. All of you uh, being part of the Reformed tradition, but of course uh, Bonhoeffer was Lutheran, uh, but hey, let's forget about that for a while. Uh, Bonhoeffer, most of you have heard about this notion of costly grace. right? So Bonhoeffer was very concerned that Christians basically made grace into a contractual arrangement. I believe in your grace and therefore I am saved forever. It takes away from what it means to follow the cross, to follow Jesus with Jesus' co-disciples to becoming the presence of what God wants to do through Jesus in the world. He was very concerned about it. So he made a distinction between cheap grace that he felt everybody was wallowing in and loved and costly grace. And this is how he makes this distinction. Costly grace is grace that engenders discipleship and concomitant personal and social transformation. So I told you this, moving towards holiness is also part of what costly grace does. It's not just grace given to you and say, you do whatever you want, at the end I will rescue you. Okay? This is basically part and parcel of what God wants to do. Rather than cheap grace, a grace, he says in his words, a grace that exonerates the church from the demanding work of transformative activity in the world. I'm actually, you know, my, my sense is that there's also something called costly works. Okay? I'm not, not talking about the cheap work in which we feel good about it. That's, as you know, you're the only one who feels good about it. So every time I f have a high from some cheap work, uh, the first one to barf at this are my children and my wife threw them. That, you know, so she, she's usually very quiet about it, but I'm sure she exults in the fact, wow, 
because I feel good, but no one around you feels good. This is the kind of cheapness of grace that you've done a little bit here and there. But the costly work is the work that comes in this following. In this moving towards our own holiness. In this transformation that is happening, which you testified to, it's happening to you. You didn't realize it. But to allow this to happen. And I believe that what we are called to do is costly work. Uncommon work. Work that nobody else does. And that's what I think the church is known for. You take the church around in history. It's known for grabbing power, killing off many people that didn't believe like us. It's known for all of that. Uh, grabbing land, taking over. It's known for that. But it's also known for what people like Mother Teresa did of Calcutta. It known where nobody else went. She would be. What was it? It was just being there so that the dying person can hear the word that you are loved and you are forgiven. See, costly work is not wordless. I want to repeat that. Costly work is not wordless. I've been in many situations in which I've gone there to help based on what I thought I should be doing, which is to work with material benefits for the person that I'm in with. But every now and then I know that my job is not just to meet their need, but also when they tell me something, to say that you are forgiven. That's the good news. That's where grace abounds for all of us. I'm rotten, yet God has forgiven me. So my sense is that it's also reclaiming what this means to who and what we should be. Um, I want to leave you with just a, a visual because most of the time uh, among my students this works pretty well. Um, if we can get this to move. But that's, that's fine. Uh, no, no, that's fine. It's just, we've just got a minute. So, so, so let me just try it once. Yeah. Let's see if that, ah. Okay, a lot of us actually think we've given ourselves up to the compassionate one in certain ways based on images of the compassionate one. So I want to leave these two with you because they have very different conceptions of what is compassion and what we're called to do. The left is Warner Salman's Head of Christ, 1940s. 500 million souls. So it should be in your house or your parents' home. How many of you know this image? Yeah. See, like I grew up in India. I grew up with this. As soon as you walked in our house, and when you, whenever you went to Jesus, you said, Jesus, like the Hindus do, right? So this is the image that you go. This is a very interesting image. Medical artist Richard Neve was asked by BBC. BBC was doing a documentary. And so they said, we really want to know, have an image of Jesus. And what they did is they found skull, uh, one or two skulls from Palestine, the first century. Okay? So they got together, you know the people that put out your police reports, sketches? So they got together Dr. Uh, 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 Richard Neve, who got his team together. This is how actually he put out a vision of what it means. And I always think to myself, the compassion that I am filled with is not biblical. It comes from Solomon's vision. So my compassion is, yes, I will pray for you. I look at you in such a way. That's wonderful. Go in peace. This image basically is, I will infiltrate you. I will see what you need. I will ask you a tough question if I need to, if it is on behalf of the people that are harassed and helpless. Very different ways in which we understand this. 
Do we have a minute for questions? Or comments? I'm, I'm back with you again uh, mm -hmm. next week. So, any questions or comments? Well, yeah. if not, again, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Real pleasure to be with you today, and mm -hmm. I will see you next week. Next week will be our belief. It will be somewhat theological. I'll work with, as I said, a spacious God. I will question whether your God is far too parochial. <laughs> well, but thank it'll work oh, with that. Sir. Well, thank you. Um, and also, I wanted to let you all know that um, we will start the season one in about a week and a half, as many of you all know. And um, we've got a bunch of adult education opportunities then as well, um, both in our normal Sunday school and then also on Wednesdays, we'll have uh, Joanne Steller coming to talk about navigating busyness. And there's um, papers on the shelf over there to um, describe some of the extra Lent events. So, um, Feel free to look over them. And thank you again.